and welcome to Radio Meteor, the podcast where I watch an episode of 90s anime Gundam Wing and I ramble about it because it's 2019 and the kids are fighting for their rights. This week it's episode 10, Hiro Distracted by Defeat, or as they say in Japan, Hiro Senko Nichiru. Double digits, guys, episode 10. I honestly can't believe I've been doing this dumb little show for about 11 weeks now. It's it's been really good fun, um, and I'm I'm hoping to keep it going. In this episode, Relina and Wufei are utterly pointless. Un pulls out all of the stops, but Noin steals the show with a mic drop. I'm Odamaki, aka Lemon Trash. Welcome to Orbit. The title card for this episode was read by Duo's voice actor, I think, so I'm still keeping tabs on that, and I've also been keeping tabs on how different characters address one another, but I'll only mention new ones or things that are relevant to the plot or where anything changes, so I'm not going to provide a whole list. I'll, I'll stick something in the footnotes. The only one that has really come up is kaka, which is a horrible word to say with an English accent, but it means your excellency. That's direct translation. It's the one that Zex uses when he speaks to Trey's. So it's Trey's a kaka. Yeah, I mean, if there are any character who was a kaka, it's definitely Trey's. Um, but that aside, let's get into the episode. We land in this episode literally in the Sank Kingdom, I believe. First impressions, it's not so much a settlement as a series of fortresses plonked onto a sort of agricultural landscape. I mean, there's a really interesting mix of styles if you care to look at this kind of world building. They've got some lovely Bolognese style covered porticos around these buildings topped off with really Norman looking castellations. Bit of an odd mix. Chase and Un arrive to check out the tall geese, and Un is a little bit jealous. A little sort of odd conversation that goes down here. It's almost like parent-like. So Un kind of tuts and she's like, you're going to spoil that boy. And then Trey's is kind of like, I'll raise my child how I see fit. Which does tie into something that happens later and is a kind of psychological concept I'll discuss. But yeah, there's this kind of weird dynamic growing between the four primary antagonists. So Trey's, Zex, Un and Noin. Un is still peeved when they go in to talk to Zex and Noin. Um, she has this attitude that thanking soldiers is beneath that of a leader, and even if it's offered, the, the thanks shouldn't be too readily accepted by the soldiers. That it's, it's shameless to acknowledge thanks from your superiors. So there's, from her perspective, there's a real lack of humility and hierarchy, I suppose. And Un is super rigid. She has one note in her tone throughout this scene and it's clipped, it's robotic. It's either imperative or else it's that very boot camp type of sir, yes sir. And she really holds her personality back in this scene. We get none of her more feminine speech, which we see when she's talking to Trey's more privately. So it, she definitely thinks Zex is a worm and that Noin is an upstart and like, she's not happy with them. Uh, on a side note, I hate Noin's cape. Who decided that mustard and duck egg blue was a good combination? Yellow and blue, sure, but that yellow and that blue? Mm, no, no, not buying it. Anyway, Un hauls Noin out of there to go and brief some soldiers, uh, leaving Zex to have a little tete-a-tete with Trez. 
I also I apologize I vary between calling him Trez and Trez and I, I can't help it like I'm just a disaster it's uh that's probably why I relate to the show anyway uh remember last week when I said that in the Japanese Noin refers to Zex as the Lightning Baron, but in the English subtitles it says Lightning Count. Well, in this scene, Trey says, I think I better understand your feelings about the Alliance now, Lightning Baron, or should I call you Lightning Count? So the difference isn't really explained, but I guess that's where that weird bit of translation came from last time, in that he actually does own both names, but they relate to his two different personalities. So the Lightning Baron is his personality as Zex Marquis, and Curiously, Marquise also is a title, which I hadn't thought of until literally just saying that out loud. Um, and then Lightning Count refers to his identity as Miliardo Peacecraft. Um, so I, I think we can presume that Miliardo Peacecraft's hereditary title is that of Count, while he has assumed the title of Baron as Zex. Now, for those of you who find this confusing, let's do a really quick hot rundown of what the British peerage titles are and how they work in relation to one another. So at the top of the pecking order you have the king or queen, uh, possibly one of those plus a consort. Uh, so just FYI, marrying a king or queen doesn't automatically make you one as well. So for example England currently has no king. Yeah, We don't have one, we've only got a queen. The children of the king or queen are typically termed prince and princess. The eldest heir would have the added title crown, so we've got a crown prince. There are some variations in mainland Europe, so Archduke is the equivalent of a prince, and Duke is higher than a prince if you happen to be French, because, you know, why be straightforward when you can be French? Below the prince and princess in the British peerage, you have dukes. There's usually very few of them, and to add to the general puzzling nature of this whole system, a prince is usually also a duke. So point in case, Queen Elizabeth of England is married to Prince Philip of Greece, who is also the Duke of Edinburgh. Prince William is also the Duke of Cambridge, and the female equivalent to these titles is, of course, Duchess. Now, below a Duke, you have a Count or an Earl, and the female equivalent for both of those is Countess. So Earl is the title typically used in the UK, and it's Count in basically most other places. Counts can be promoted, so there is a kind of system where if... You're almost too good to be a count, but not enough to be a duke, because there's so few duke titles, you could be promoted to a marquis. Uh, the female is uh, marchioness. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, or if you are kind of too good to be one of the lesser titles, but you're not quite good enough to be a count, because again, there's a limited number of these titles, you'd be a, a vice count uh, or a vice countess. Uh, so the children of counts and earls tend to be those titles. Um, and you can think of it like vice president. That's kind of what it means. It's the same vice stem word. Barons then are complicated. Uh, technically, it's the highest title you can have without actually being in the royal peerage. So everything I've mentioned so far are part of the royal peerage. And then you have barons immediately below that. Uh, and the, that title defers to the ones already mentioned. However, in another respect, it's the umbrella term for all of the titles below that of prince. So when the king has to go and discuss with his barons, he's, that includes all the dukes and earls and counts and everybody. Uh, and then below that, you have titles of honour, like knight and so on. So that 
that's just kind of awarded to you. Why am I focusing on the British peerage, you may ask? Good question. Well, the answer is it's because Japan copied the system in the Meiji era. So when the feudal system of the daimyo was abolished, they copied in the British peerage system in order to kind of maintain a sort of class structure and also um, the, the sort of peerage that they'd had historically anyway. So Japan has historically had counts and barons, albeit they were known by their Chinese terms, which are as follows. So you have prince, the equivalent of a duke, which is koushaku, and then you have marquis, which is koushaku, same pronunciation, different characters. Then you have count, which is hakushaku, which pops up a lot in anime. Below that you have viscount, so shishaku, and then finally at the bottom, baron, danshaku. This system was then abolished in the 40s, so Japan now only has the imperial family, so emperor, empress, princes, and princesses, and there are no more existing barons. But I guess it's one of those like nostalgia things that people like to hark back to sometimes, um, particularly in, in anime. Like, like I said, the number of counts, particularly vampire counts in uh, Japanese anime, is just mind-boggling. Um, having said all of this, I do think it's really strange that Zex, or rather Milado Peacecraft, as the son of a king, has gone from count to Baron specifically. Like, that is a really weird jump, and I wonder if it's just because those are the ones that people have heard of more, or like Koshaku is just a bit more confusing because there's two words with the same pronunciation, uh, you know, what, what the fuck's a vice count anyway. Um, but yeah, at the same time, why not the Lightning Prince? Um, yeah. In any case, Zex rejects both titles. Uh, calling himself something that is put into the English by the subtitles as the killer of his own men. Uh, so in Japanese, Bukagoroshi Zex. Uh, and again, he refers to himself in that third person. So Buka means subordinate, and it's referring to his soldiers. And then Koroshi, or Goroshi is the pronunciation of this word, means to kill. Uh, it's, a, it's a very damning statement to put on himself, and I suppose it does actually come off the back of uh, Otto's demise in the previous episode. And it also harks back to that conversation he had with Noin in episode 4, where he warns her that as a leader, she has to be aware that her soldiers will die if they go into battle. And despite having said that, and I think having said it from a point of experience and kind of in a bit of cynical or clinical kind of way... We do actually get to see here now that he struggles with this concept as well. He's not comfortable with being the kind of person that inspires people to throw their lives away. And we have to remember as well, he did he was raised as a pacifist, but even if he has rejected that, it's still probably in the back of his head. Trey's replies to this Bukagoroshi Zex statement uh, by saying the Gundams, and Zex very quickly says yes. But I feel like this is referring to the tall geese rather than the other pilots. And I've never actually thought about it that way. Um, but Zex is actually really, he's another Gundam pilot. And I think that's quite unusual because you often get it in stories that the antagonist has their own evil version of the hero's main weapon or power. And there's like some symbolism about fighting yourself and whatever. But in this case, Zex has the original model. And he's only kind of gently poaching on the protagonist's territory. There's not this, like, 
as direct a comparison as say like dark color copy of one of the Gundams. It's particularly fascinating because the tall is white, it's color coded like um, the knight in shining armor. And it actually gives much less of a pantomime nuance to the dynamic between the good guys and the bad guys, which I really appreciate. The scene closes with Trey's asking Zex if he will remove his mask, and Zex kind of demurs from this. And at this point, Trey's tests him by calling him Miliardo Peacecraft. And we see, finally, some real emotion from Zex and how he reacts to that. Yeah, and then it ends with Trey saying that he trusts Zex and that he looks forward to seeing him one day without the mask. It seems sweet. I don't trust it. On to the next scene, and Un's got a cherry picker, and I love it. <laughs> um, but anyway, plot time. We are heading off to Siberia to pick up some software. Uh, no, really, I don't know much about technology. Uh, maybe this is actually how fighter jets work, but I do find it charming somehow that they can't just download a plugin. Like they have to cart all their mobile suits up to the arse end of Russia to like physically plug in a floppy disk or something. Also, they're taking them from the Victoria base, so that is a long old haul. Like they've got to get across the med there somewhere. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, and it gets real here. Um, Un drops some serious shade on Noin, like, this is all the fault of this one base, which is just so shit. We're having to take all of the mobile suits to Isengard for a reboot, and then we're going to stomp all over Africa like someone was supposed to, kind of thing. Um, and Zex, like, from the back, passes a comment and equally gets his own splash of shade. And you can just see him being like, you know what? Now is not the time. But that personal anger I was talking about earlier, just bottling it all up. And then it's coming for you, Danish pastry head. Give me time. Meanwhile, uh, Hero's doing his homework. Uh, and as a complete aside, the boy can't tie a tie. That was some really sloppy looking accessorizing there. Anyway, and he's uh, reading through a list of ammunition, and then he's interrupted by the arrival of the claw. And it's our old friend, Dr. J. Uh, but who cares what he has to say? We're going back straight back to Un. This episode jumps back and forth so much, which I guess keeps the pace going, but it also means my job is really difficult. Finally, I think for the first time we get to learn the Gundam suit's names. I mean, they're not really names, they're designations given, and they're only like Gundam 01, Gundam 02. Uh, but we do get a little bit more information that is obviously plainly obvious. So Gundam 01 is very mobile as an aircraft, and Un's plan is to pluck its wings off like a fly, and then bully it into submission. And then she starts talking about Gundam 02, but oh no, wait, who cares? Back to Hero and Dr. J, and they're talking about the Tauruses. They can learn. Uh, J tells Hero that, you know, this shit is dangerous and untrustworthy. Go and wreck it up. J out. And then Duo just casually barges into Hero's room. I... Think he's been eavesdropping personally. He foreshadows a bad feeling about this mission and says that they need their own plan, which is a nod towards that the greater cooperation that Hero doesn't really seem to be getting on board with. Um, anyway, where was I? Back to Un. Uh, Un details that Gundam 02 is sneaky and specializes in close combat, whereas 03 is reliant on its ammo. Pertinently, she also states that none of them are that good at organised battle. 
They just wade in, each with his own plan or no plan, and her argument is a good one. Although with the flip-flap back and forth between Un and the different characters, we do get to see how the wheels are turning. So we see Troa and Catra unknowingly both planning to attack the land route, which is Dewa's plan as well. And again, they're both considering aspect of cooperation, so Troa's concern is that they'll be split across the two routes, that decreases their chances of success, and Catra's they just don't have information so that his role he's aiming to get it and then relay that to the others not sure how maybe they set up a whatsapp um maybe oz still think the youth are on facebook who knows meanwhile out there in the lee valley uh, nataku is having a paddle will wufei does that classical chinese painting thing of standing on an improbably high rock in a river like a goat and you just what look at it and think how the hell are you going to get down from there just walk off the top and splot right into the water um but yeah this is this is a moat and float part two uh, and for the first time wufei is the only one very evidently without any kind of plan like he's falling off the bandwagon completely whereas the others are actually starting to up their game finally meanwhile Un's still going through it uh we learn that gundam 04 is also a close range combat specialist but less so than uh 02 and i do love her advice about zero five uh it's just that don't even go near it just chuck bombs at it until it's gone there's a nice bit as well where she literally lords it over zex so i watched many years ago now a study on body language and in it they showed how rival presidents will try and stand a step higher than one another on a flight of stairs but this absolutely takes the biscuit and like put me six feet above him but in his face so he feels like the bug that he is and it's uh, glorious she orders Noin to headquarters and then she orders Zex once again to the hottest piece of the fray uh, to take on Zero One head to head. I mean, she wants him inconvenience, preferably dead at this point. Should we call it jealousy? Yeah, I think we can. She's, she's kind of resentful of the relationship that he has with Trace and then by extension that Noin has. Obviously, you know, Noin's been on the blower talking to Trace, calling in favours and whatnot. So, uh, un, she's not she's not on board with this. She's not happy about it. Meanwhile, Melina is alive. She's meeting some Girl Scouts. Shrug. You know, he really gives a crap. Uh, and then Un and Noin arrive at headquarters, catch her attacks, and with that, cue the big giant head moment. <laughs> mentioned up to now a couple of interactions between characters that haven't really been picked up on in fandom so i just want to take a moment five seconds of silence to just reflect on katra's literal damsel in distress on a railway track moment and the fact that duo derails an entire fucking train with his bare mobile suit hands for him yeah that was that happened it was great the more I watch Heavy Arms fight, the less efficient this whole robot seems. Uh, it can't fly. It can't really move fast. It has to use a lot of bullets to take out one enemy. It just seems like such a struggle. Anyway, this whole scene is quite fast-paced. Uh, Zex enters the battle, and he's very similar to Trey's in that he's like, how about we don't use any of these fancy weapons that we have and just go in for an old-fashioned duel? I mean... And eases the odds on Zex, which then ups his confidence, but... Nah. Nah. 
and it's moot anyway as this uh, whole Zex and Trey's triangle comes to a head with Un threatening the colonies and Zex getting really pissed off. Uh, it, it's personal for sure and I kind of love that she just point blank hangs up on him. <laughs> She's like, eh, not listening to you. And then she bitch slaps Noin for her back chat. Now, I just want to talk about this um, whole face slapping thing because typically when that comes up in media and it's one woman slaps another because they're having a disagreement there's kind of this jump to this action is a nod towards some like girl on girl cat fight and this is how women fight and when a woman is pissed off she slaps faces but i want to talk about the former imperial japanese army and face slapping because this was a real thing back in the day so let's just park those notions of un being you know getting into a cat fight this i think is purely about hierarchy so she mentioned this before that officers shouldn't have to thank soldiers for doing their duty and that is the angle i think that this is coming from so back in the day japanese officers slapped subordinates it was considered a means of training and of conditioning men particularly those from poorer families merchant classes or non-japanese who were seen as inferior soldiers like less mentally hardy or in, just in short not samurai enough. The systems involved were various, but there's two that I think I'll mention. So there was one that was called Binto, and there was also Yamato Damashi. So Yamato is the name of like historic Japan before it became known as Nippon or Nihon, and uh, it's kind of like the legendary golden era of Japan, like the highest point of samurai culture. And then Damashi basically is to be quiet or to keep your mouth closed so i guess you could translate that up as shut up and take it like you're a man from old japan at this time in the japanese army there was absolutely no concept of illegal orders and obedience was required to be absolute and you know i don't think that can be stressed enough absolute obedience so these were practices with concepts that are really truly difficult to get your head around from a modern perspective and a lot of people really found it alienating at the time even the Japanese soldiers themselves the practice of face slapping comes from this parental role of discipline that is I chastise thee not out of hatred but out of love or I guess spare the rod and spoil the child now why? Un points out another home truth the colonies are horribly vulnerable, at which point Dr. J comes out of the woodwork and he finally makes a declaration from C1013 Colony that he is the party behind the Gundam attacks and that he is not a representative of the colonies as a whole. Um, so that's really important. This is the first time anybody on the kind of Gundam team rebellion side has actually come out and made a statement of who they are roughly and what they're doing and why. Dr. J surrenders, and then by extension also, so does Hero, and he steps out of his Gundam. Uh, at which point, in the English subtitles, Zex says, a boy. The pilot of that Gundam is a little boy. In Japanese, however, he says shonen, and I think it's a fascinating choice that the translation chooses to really emphasise Hero's use like that. And then, of course, horrifically, and in not so many words, J orders Hero not to surrender the Gundam. Um, and here is another horrible reflection on the reality of history. So, 
In the Imperial Japanese Army, which was the fighting force of World War II, no formal instructions were given to soldiers on how to behave if they were captured, because the policy was no surrender and death before dishonour. And Japan did not recognise prisoners of war. They didn't have that in their legislation. So incessantly, these soldiers were reminded that they held an obligation to the nation and the honour of dying gloriously on the battlefield, and that they just obeyed every command without question. And ironically, actually, this led to many soldiers who were captured to just simply cooperate, um, because they didn't know what else to do. And so they, they just answered questions if they were asked them and simply started new lives. Uh, many of them just never returned to Japan for fear of the um, the consequences of, of, of having been someone who surrendered effectively, which was just unthinkable. So, well, this is just an anime. Honestly, I, I do feel like there is increasing depth to this story, which can be used to discuss some of these matters that um, have been present in, in history. And it's worth also knowing that the education system in Japan has been and continues to be quite controversial with how they approach the discussion of World War II and Japan's involvement in the mid-90s. There are very few textbooks that really address much of anything. Um, it's very heavily glossed over. And even amongst families, the, the realities of World War II are not really much talked about, and they still aren't much talked about in some cases. So no matter what my perception of how these parts of the story are handled, the fact that these parallels are there at all is, is kind of remarkable, given when it was produced, and I think... Laudable. I'm always keen for there to be new ways for us to engage with history and discuss it and make it understandable. Um, so I think this is a parable story of Japan's military history, and I think it's highly engaging as a result. But of course, the problem is you can't see the parable if you don't know the history. Hiro, in contrast to Otto, does not go out with a banzai. He just does as he's told. And it's heartbreaking and it's wasteful for entirely different reasons. And it shocks. It's shocking both internally to the story and to the audience. You know, I think lots and lots of people have said this was difficult to watch. It shocked them as a teenager that they cried, you know. And I can think of other anime where the protagonist literally self-sacrifices himself for the greater cause and comes back. Nothing quite like this, because there's no emotional drive behind Hero's suicide the way that Otto's was emotionally driven. Otto did it for a cause. He did it for personal reasons, and he did it to promote what he felt was the greater good. Hero just does it because he is told to do it. I think it's also relevant to say that this particular episode isn't all just about the older story of World War II. In the early 90s, there was a lot of emerging awareness of how conflicts in Africa especially were involving children. And I remember that a major UN study was commissioned around the time to really try and wake the world up to the horror of the, the global recruitment of child soldiers. And this was coming out of a wave of conflicts from the the. 80s into the 90s you had Cambodia, Liberia, Sierra Leone, uh, Sudan, Ethiopia like and Rwanda 
uh, and there was this massive international media coverage showing these images of, of child soldiers, and it was really generating public consciousness towards the crisis. Pertinently, this scene in, in the show is set in Africa, uh, where much of this awareness was coming from. You know, we still have the image of the child soldier today as being an African boy holding a gun. And, you know, obviously I can't, this is conjecture, I can't say which came first, the awareness of, of the crisis or the writing of this episode. But again, there are parallels which seem to me to be deliberate. Japanese anime is not well famed for setting its dramas in Africa, after all. We see the other characters react to Hiro's actions um, in, in quite a deep way. So for Zex, it's about the willingness to sacrifice without hesitation, something that he himself could not do even when he was fighting for the liberation of his own country, which was his entire goal, when it, even when it was about getting the vengeance that he's been working for for so many years. For Un, it's a surprise that somebody feels the colonies have that much value, that they would go to such extremes for something that wasn't the kind of cause that she adheres to. For Noin, it's the level of obedience, I think, that strikes her, that, that Hero has demonstrated. He's told to do it, and he does it. Whereas she's really been shown to question and kind of talk back and, and go outside of her, her tram lines to, to, to change things. Uh, and finally, for Katra, it's the simple heartbreak of it. It's just a physical pain tying into his whole space heart thing. There's two people whose reactions we don't get to see, so we don't get to see Jiro's reaction. His thoughts remain private. And Troa's reaction is less introspective and more active. Somehow, he is the one who steps into the void as leader of this little group. He gives the advice that they need to move out, and he steps up to see if Zex will attack, like if he needs to be hero second in the duel, and he, he takes that role on. And I think the most touching thing is that Troa, who has had the least contact with Hero of all of them, won't leave the body behind. Perhaps this is playing again on this man versus machine theme, just as they won't let Zero One fall into enemy hands. Troa values the human element, and he won't let them have the pilot either. The episode closes in a scene where Noin is given a chance for payback. Uh, she blocks Un's hand this time, and she definitely enjoys being the one to voice a direct criticism. Uh, it's also interesting to me that when she repeats more graceful lady, in Japanese, she uses the English word elegant, and she stresses lady. So these are no doubt Trace's words verbatim, uh, as lady is how he addresses her, not noin. That's about all there is for episode 10. It's quite a heavy episode, and I think there's a lot in it to really consider. Obviously, we know that Hero will come back, but just the way that this has whole been set up, it is shocking, and I think it is a story about war and about the human consequences of it, and it is a reflection on things that, that that have happened in the past, even though these things aren't necessarily underscored the way that Otto's Banzai was slightly underscored. These themes are still in this episode, and I think they will carry forward, and I'm really actually fascinated to see how that does develop um because it's something in in history that i've had to actually go and read up on um and i've read a number of biographies um of 
prisoners of war in Japanese camps in World War Two, and uh, a couple of accounts of Japanese soldiers in their retirement afterwards. So yeah, I think I think there's a, really a lot to take away, and there's just huge amounts in here that could be used as potential means for discussing um, some of these some of these things that um, I believe are quite important to discuss. But that's that's it for episode ten. Uh, just a reminder that next week there is no new episode. Uh, I'll be back the week after with episode eleven instead. Uh, thank you for listening and joining me on this journey, and I will see you in orbit next time. Bye.